sun and, and the wind have been part of the natural process for Earth's movement and, and life cycle for like billions of years and we've only been burning coal and, and oil for like a hundred or, or so uh, at least at the scale of the Industrial Revolution um, it's just remarkable to try and think about the time scale um, and how uh, when it comes to coal and oil too it takes millions of years for that carbon to turn into those energy sources and and like we can just dig it up refine it and burn it in like a week or something like that and even if you are doing the best you can you just look up into the sky oh and there's two tornado jet fighters scooting past you know they're burning in an hour what you will use in a lifetime by way of fossil fuels I've been drilling for conversation. I discovered 100 opportunities to record conversations with people I knew and people I now know about climate breakdown. I'm sharing all the best bits with you in this podcast series. This is episode six, Keep It In The Ground. There are 10 episodes and one special episode, so do have a listen from the start if you get a chance. This one is all about oil, generating and using power. Here we go. Focus for a little minute on the oil business, right? Okay. The oil industry produces and sells, and people buy and consume every day 100 million barrels of oil. If you've got a calculator, you can calculate that number in litres. But it's enormous. But, you know, the oil companies don't really want to produce oil. They just want to make money. If they couldn't sell the oil that they're producing today, they would stop producing it. So if we don't want them to be polluting the, the environment with, with oil, then we just got to stop buying it. It's as simple as that. Oil is amazing, though, isn't it? It's it's really useful for lots of things. It's everywhere. I mean, if you just look at uh, what you're wearing right now, from the soles of your shoes, your socks, and all the way up to the top of your head, to the bottle that the shampoo came in, it's all plastic. And we can't do we can't get rid of all of that overnight. On a personal level, um, you know, I was unemployed and walking down the street and somebody said, oh, you can get your job in the oil business. What well, that will do for me? And so that's, a, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't planned or structured or anything like that. And it worked out all right for me. But it's, um, you know, that was back in 1976 when the oil industry was new. And now the oil industry is a little bit old and the reservoirs in the North Sea are a little bit played out and they found all the best ones and now they're looking at the smaller and smaller and smaller ones. 
because it's a bit like you're, um, you know, when you come down on Christmas Day and you see all the presents under the tree, you see the biggest ones first. So when you go to explore in a new area for oil, you find all the biggest and best reservoirs first, and then the little ones later. Fracking is is putting putting enough pressure onto a piece of rock so that the rock cracks. That's what fracking is. And the reason you do that is to allow the oil or the gas to flow more freely from one place to another within the body of the rock. I mean, I was fracking oil wells in the middle of the North Sea in the early 80s. And nobody worried about it. But that was because they were different sort of reservoirs. And all you needed was a few fractures to um, improve the permeability, the ability of the oil to flow. But the fracking that they're doing in America in the shale uh, reservoirs, shale is a bit like slate. The slate's on your roof. And if you can imagine the slate's on your roof with tiny, tiny holes in them, and each little hole has got a bubble of gas, like aero, you know, an aero bar. Yeah. Okay, so each one of those little aero pockets is got a little bubble of gas in it. And if you want to get all that gas out of that rock, you're going to have to make all of those little bubbles connect. It's like bubble wrap. If you can imagine, every little bubble of bubble wrap is, is full of gas, but they're all individual and they're all individually sealed. So if you drill into that, you'll maybe run into 10 or 20 or a million of those little bubbles. But you need to run into 50 million of those bubbles if there's a thousand million of the bubbles there, you need to get the access to them all. So it's it's a desperately poor reservoir that you're drilling into, which is indicative that you know we're we're scraping the bottom of the barrel, as it were, now for places where all the easy oil is gone, and now we're having to go after the hard to get oil. And the people who are driving the oil companies to explore for more oil are the people who are buying more and more oil every day. If they bought less oil, the oil companies wouldn't have to go so far to find the oil. And we wouldn't be using up a resource that's taken 165 million years to produce over a period of 100 years. Because it's like, I keep hearing this thing, keep it in the ground. Like, keep the oil in the ground is one of the actions that we have to yeah. take. Yeah. Like, well, that's... To keep it, you don't have to do anything to keep it in the ground. You just have to not buy it. If you don't buy it, they won't produce it. I mean, everybody who went to Kyoto to discuss the, uh, the climate crisis, the only people we should pay any attention to were the ones who arrived by canoe. Because everybody else flew in there. Did some people actually arrive by canoe? Did some people go by canoe? Pardon? Did some people go by canoe? No, of course oh, not. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> the oil industry try and stay out of the public eye as much as possible. They don't really advertise what they do. They just... You go to a petrol station and you fill up your car with petrol and it's about £1.30 a litre or something like that now. Half of that is tax, 
which is going to the government and is paying for nurses and nuclear power stations and um, aircraft carriers. And the other half is paying for something that's 165 million years ago that was buried in the ground three miles uh, deep, 150 miles off the coast of Aberdeen. And somebody has gone and found it, drilled the wells, identified the source of the oil, produced it, shipped it through a pipeline back to Grangemouth where it's purified and then it's put in a tanker and driven up to the petrol station that's, you know, a mile and a half from where you live. And you buy it for um, 1.30 a litre. And then you go in and you uh, have a bottle of Coke or you have a, a bottle of water at the, par- at the petrol station as well. And that's a pound as well. So the water that falls out of the sky all too frequently in Scotland, you're happy to pay a pound for that. And it comes in a plastic bottle, which keeps it fresh and keeps it safe, keeps it uncontaminated. And we we don't understand or value how brilliant the oil industry is at its job of supplying everybody with the oil that they want at a price that is cheaper than all the other sources of energy. Well, there's always a gem, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know how men in prison like to bulk up. So that, that's what it's like. It's actually akin to being in prison, to be honest. Mm. Especially working in an oil rig in the middle of the, any, you know, the sea. Yeah. Did you do yeah. like two weeks on, two weeks off? Or? Well, when you're working down in Africa, it's usually four weeks down there and four weeks back home. So... But yeah. Must be it's, hard it, to... It has to be done. It has yeah. to be done to put... put um, loaf on the table yeah and they say in Aberdeen it's a fair fetch for half a loaf what does that mean it's a so- it's basically a hard fight for half a half a bread yeah like you know feeding the family is a hard uh, it's a hard job in the in the North Sea now that the, the whole process is quite environmentally friendly yeah but you have to think about this has only been because, you know, over a few decades, certain legislation's been imposed on them, you know? Like, I mean, like, down in Africa, none of the, none of the same, um, none of the same stringency, shall we say, is, is, is applied down there. Um, regards regarding spillage, etc. Yeah. All right. Okay. I mean, basically, I don't think it would be the same in the North Sea if it wasn't on Europe's back doorstep. You know, so any major spillage in the North Sea affects could affect you know you know nor the whole the whole of that coast. You know, Norway all the way down, Holland, you know, Belgium, north of France. So. I think in many ways the North Sea now is probably one of the, the most clean environments you, you could probably work in, in the oil industry anyway. Well, I mean, they're still, they're still discovering oil and um, gas. Uh, you know, they're still going on about major finds in the North Sea now. Um, 
just obviously what can, constitutes a major fine's gotten smaller as the years have gone by, you know. But having said that, these because the movement in technology and development in technology, it all becomes viable. They're all, the, the, you know, if the, if the drill there, they're going to make money. And that's the bottom line, you know. The oil's there, it's just if it's worthwhile drilling for it. I spoke to quite a lot of people with links to Aberdeen. Let's think for a minute about that area and the people who work in oil. I mean, Aberdeen before the oil was essentially a, a fish port. Yeah. So the fish is, fish is long gone. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what it'll do. I mean, to be honest, the... the the, uh, the infrastructure is there, the, and the skills base is there for renew- renewables. I mean, I, I remember um, uh, when I was at university, I, I, I ended up uh, interviewing, um, I, I did quite a bit, I, I did a bit of research up in Peterhead. Um, basically, what we're talking about here, you know, because Peterhead had a huge sort of uptake in business because of the oil industry and because all the boats go in there um, and it was basically asking them what exactly what next sort of thing and there was, there was massive talk at the time but I haven't seen any, any change in the place of basically what they were talking about was a, a, renew, a renewables corridor you know the, the road that goes up from Aberdeen to Peterhead mm-hmm. That whole, basically, the, they were planning to develop that whole bit of coast, and that was going to be basically the, the renewable centre of, of Europe, as it were. You know, like like Aberdeen sold itself as the the energy capital of Europe with the oil. The idea was that they were going to try and sell themselves as the renewable energy centre. So I don't know. But I haven't seen it. I haven't seen any like renewable companies springing up there overnight. That sounds so, great, though. Let's do that. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that, that. That would be the that would be the um the logical thing to do. You know, what I mean, you've got you've got you've got the, those you've got this, a, a certain skill set from the oil industry. So why not use it? You know, when I, when I was graduating, you could actually see that. Um, the oil and gas industry was suffering a bit because, of course, especially in places like Aberdeen, which have used their reservoir for probably more than 30 years, starting in the mid 70s, yeah. Um, you know, and what's happening there is that um, um, producing oil and gas is just getting more and more expensive because, uh, uh, of course, as the resources just diminish, uh, you have to invest more in infrastructure and recovery methods. Um, I think Scotland in general has very high potential in Aberdeen, of course, for renewable energy like tidal, wind, etc. And I really, I really hope that uh, that's going to happen in Aberdeen. It's becoming the oil and gas capital of Europe. Scotland's Scotland's in a very unique position regarding that. I mean, we could, as a small, you know, country, we could we could be self you know, reliant very easily through renewables in Scotland, you know? Yeah. Very easily. As a matter of fact, we'd probably be, um, we'd, in a, you know, if this, the, the right policies were applied in Scotland, we'd probably, and if 
before were independent, we'd probably be selling England electricity and water within a decade. What's going to happen to Aberdeen when the oil goes? Yeah, I mean, it's already starting to go. It's already starting to fall apart, right? Like, everyone's losing their jobs. The property market's gone, had a big crash, and yeah. And then, yeah, it's really interesting. And it's also like, it's also kind of strange as well, because there's also, there's always been heaps of poverty in Aberdeen as well. So it's like, it's always been a disparity that has, of like, of wealth that has felt like this most frustrating thing of like a seemingly rich city and actually none of that being fed back into the sort of economy of the city. Yeah, I think it's going to be horrific when the oil industry really goes because um, I what tends to happen, because I was doing the welfare rights thing just as the oil kind of started to go down uh, and they were laying people off. And what you were finding is you've got guys who are probably in their mid-twenties that have been earning ridiculous amounts of money because they do. Um, I mean, I'm not saying they don't earn it because life on the rigs is hard. Um, I did. I had a, a young couple who had just bought their house and everything and suddenly he was made redundant and they had no way to pay for the house because um, obviously the mortgage was ridiculous payments. I think it was like £3,000 a month for their mortgage, let alone anything else. And obviously they had the big cars and all of that. And it left them in a horrible state. So I do think that when the oil's gone, it's going to hit this area massively. Um, and I, I think it could be quite devastating for a lot of people. Um, and as you say, there is the, the issue around, are they going to be saying, oh, you worked in the oil and oil's dirty and, and bad and everything else. So... Yeah, I, I do think it's very difficult. The oil price has been down for about four years now, but inevitably the oil price will go back up and everybody else will hit it and the people in the oil business will like it because we're uh, up here in Aberdeen, we're contracyclical for the rest of the economy. When the rest of the economy is hurting because of high oil prices, we're booming because of high oil prices. Yeah. Do you feel that people, people personally in the oil industry are sometimes victimised in a way that they shouldn't be? Uh, well, you know, it's it's just like, um, I think it was uh, Sting had a song where he said, you know, the Russians love their children too, you know. And the people in the oil industry, they have hopes and dreams for their children. They don't want their children living in a polluted environment. They want them to be able to drink clean water and breathe fresh air and uh, have a regularity of supply. What they do is that they, you know, their job, the people who work in the oil industry, is to produce is to produce oil that other people are clamouring to buy. I mean, if the petrol stations ran out of petrol tomorrow, there would be no end of uh, people who are uh, upset about it. Julia is a chemical engineer who began her studies in Aberdeen and has a really interesting career in green technologies. I started about seven years ago um, 
you know, I was、uh, very much into you know oil and gas, and then studying, studying like you know engineering, chemical engineering, and everything else,、uh, and seeing, witnessing what was happening、uh, around us with the climate change. I just changed my path, and I was like, of course, I graduated from chemical engineering, but soon out of、uh, university, I managed to find a、um, you know a job in Spain, where basically I worked in.、Um, Developing membrane for carbon capture and、uh, how to use carbon、uh, carbon capture to、uh, you know to actually decrease our you know carbon emission in industrial processes. And、uh, from there onward, I came back to Scotland and I worked for this、uh, hydrogen storage project, which is in Fife, using、uh, really energy storage as a comp- complementary. Um, infrastructure to all the renewables that they're happening there, that is happening there, and from there onward, you know, I moved to London for for working to work in a consultancy, and、uh, and then after that because.、Uh, You know, I really like engineering, but I thought that to have a bigger impact, you really have to,、um, you know, either move into strategy or politics. And so I ended up in Brussels,、uh, of course, working for the new institutions,、um, where right now I'm just in between, you know, policy, strategy, politics, and engineering as well, which is which is quite a nice place to be, I guess. Like the most advanced project in carbon capture are actually in Norway. And、uh, you know, and they are closely developed by the university, and、um, and of course, I think、uh, there is this great hope from you know Europe in general to have carbon capture as an effective measure to to tackle climate change by twenty thirty. And if we think that twenty thirty is only ten years away,、um, I actually don't think、uh, is going to be possible, as you mentioned, because、uh, you know, it's something carbon capture is a technology. Something has been explored for yeah maybe twenty thirty years, and but only like you know very early stage. And so far, like you know we don't really have those big infrastructure and those big projects that we need. However,、um, something else which is happening and I think is more viable, it's、uh, carbon capture and utilization. And some company are doing it. So、uh, some company in Iceland. I don't know if you've heard of Recycling International. And the, the, it's pretty pretty interesting concept they have. So basically, they they capture carbon from um, um from uh, combined heat and power uh plants. So like of course um in uh, in Iceland there are a lot of、uh, geothermal plants, but oh、uh, like like with all this heating, of course,、uh, carbon dioxide is a byproduct. And、uh, what they do is they capture this carbon and then like they reform it to um to methanol. And methanol can be used as a clean fuel, so they actually have developed this、uh, mechanism of proper circular economy, where they use this carbon to create, to reform it with、uh, with hydrogen to create methanol, and they're using their cars. And I think you know, in a, in a very small place like Iceland, carbon capture and utilization is. Is demonstrated is being demonstrated as viable, and probably that's something something else we should explore in you know in mainland Europe. I'd say, yeah, membranes actually are one of the main、um, system、uh, because they're used they're they're used to separate、um, carbon.
carbon like carbon dioxide from the other gas. For example, like let's say you're boiling something out of your pot to cook, and then like can you imagine like putting a you know a, a clot on it, and imagine that your clot is your membrane, and then like you know this clot is gonna is going to retain some of the moisture or like some of the gas that that are coming out of your of your pot in form of vapor, and they're just going to to release something else and of course they're huge like uh, probably as big as your room and um, and they either retain the carbon dioxide or they are selective in the other in the other way and they just let pass the carbon dioxide and retain the other gas um, something else that actually the oil and gas industry is using and i see it like for the for the yeah the past few decades actually um is to use uh, carbon dioxide as a gas to, um, you know, to recover some of the oil. So, like, they actually inject gas in the, into the reservoir as a method uh, to, to recover, you know, um, heavy oil. And it's more carbon capture and utilization because they are utilizing that carbon dioxide rather than just storing there into the reservoir under the sea or, or under the rocks in general. Um, and of course, um, so far as you mentioned as well, carbon capture hasn't been demonstrated as uh, uh, economically feasible because of course it's such an early stage innovation um, that, uh, that we still don't know how to explore it, how to exploit it and uh, how to make the best use out of it. And also in terms of uh, you know financial sustainability. Okay, I haven't done the calculation myself, but I'm thinking how much carbon dioxide do we have to actually like extract from the air we're breathing and put it like you know into reservoir and to capture it into whatever to actually go back into into pre-global warming uh, temperature? Um, you know that would be interesting, like an interesting calculation to make. Like actually, how much carbon do we have to extract from the atmosphere and uh, um, just to stay um, just to maintain our global temperature below the one point five uh, degrees Celsius? Um, we also just, like have a really effective way of capturing carbon in like rainforests. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably, as you mentioned, that's probably the best, <laughs> the the best carbon sink we can we can have right now. Just you know, just planting a tree and rainforest. Um, it's making a bit of a fool of us, isn't it? When you yeah, <laughs> exactly. Just having to spend so much money and so much research and, and so much effort into into studying this new innovation when actually we already have it there. Even trying to remove carbon from the atmosphere as well, although I'm a little sceptical and hesitant of relying on carbon capture and storage technology because it feels like we're just shooting for a unicorn who's going to, you know, which just kind of saying our technology will save us at some point in the next 20 years technology will save us uh, when that technology doesn't really exist right now this is Kay, one of the young people who has been doing amazing things with the scottish youth climate strikes we have the facts the solutions what's the point in waiting now we don't have the time for that we need to act now and put in place these solutions and even if they're not even if in 10 20 years down the line we realize that there's another solution that could have mean we could continue using 
fossil fuels or something with carbon capture. We don't have that now and we don't have the time to wait for that solution. Yeah. So even if it means mass change, changing our lifestyle a lot, that's what we need to do. The worst case scenario is, at the moment, if we continue on our current path of emissions rising, then we get to about four degrees of warming and that would be absolutely devastating. There would be extreme weather events becoming more and more frequent, the seas would rise and bits of low-lying land would be uninhabitable, which would create mass migration of uh, climate refugees. And as well, with the temperature rising by four degrees, that would, that would create bits of land that are just too hot to grow crops and food and in some places even to live on. So what do my climates know about renewables? You know, there's wave power and there's wind power and there's tidal power and there's biomass and there's lots of different ways we can generate uh, electricity. But if they cost more than it costs to produce a barrel of oil, then people won't buy it. To, to jump off on that, uh, yesterday or two days ago on the news, uh, one of the stories was a highlight of our president in, in the U.S. Um, approving some sort of clean coal power plant plan to like reverse the Obama era uh, Clean Power Act or something. And so, you know, at the same time, though, I think in the exact same report, um, it mentioned that solar and wind is now economically almost on the same level of uh, like economic stability or something like that to coal. So it's taken a long time. It's taken like what 15 or 20 years more for the technology to reach a point at, at scale on an economic level to be viable in comparison to coal. But they reported that on the news the other day, like NPR, that that wind and solar have now uh, reached the same level of if not even surpassed uh, coal in terms of economic viability. That's good news. Like, that's really awesome. Um, more and more and more people are just, like, totally changing their tune and saying, what are we doing? Why are we still burning stuff when we don't have to? And uh, some of them are even, like, politicians, you know, challenging their, their, their state governments and challenging the federal government to be more... Uh, not just aware, but like willing to do something about it and shift their their economic models or their energy models rather because of the economic viability. So it's a powerful tool. This whole idea about just the economy is what's driving these changes. It's really awesome. You can see now that you know the whole solar panel and things that those they're manufacturing them quicker, they're building them quicker, they're installing them quicker, and uh, they are becoming uh, more, and the, you know, the amount, that, but still, the amount that they're putting in, in, you know, that every day that is used from uh, renewable energy sources is is small. You know, it's maybe six or eight percent of the of the whole mix. I think for two days last week, we managed to do without any coal power stations. 
but the weather was mild um, and uh, and uh, so there was enough there was enough wind blowing sometimes building wind turbines can be controversial even environmental charities like the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds might oppose plans Basically, global warming is worse for geese, surely. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, like, will they not just negotiate their way around the wind farm? Well, this is what they were saying anyway, was that it was bad for geese and nesting geese and, um, and I suppose visually as well, and the noise of them, they're noisy. People think they're ugly, don't they, and that they ruin the scenery and landscape and stuff as well. I have little time for that argument. I think they're pretty. I think they're beautiful. Yeah, have you ever stood underneath one? Uh, yeah, once, like ages ago. They're uh, they are quite yeah, quite mad. But one rotation powers like a whole house for a day. See, that's crazy. That's brilliant, isn't it? Mhm. like standing under a wind turbine? I actually think, you know a lot of people complain about the noise of them? Well, as I say, I mean, these aren't the biggest ones, but they're, they were a fair size and you could hear them. But I actually find it quite therapeutic because it's just a, almost like, you know, some people have white noise to help them go to sleep and things. I find it was almost like that. But it was quite, you know, something to see just to stand below this massive turbine and everything um but no i i don't see they're a nuisance so i know a lot of people complain about them and say they're an eyesore and everything else but my argument to that is would you rather have a nuclear power station on your doorstep 
you know, because I know I certainly wouldn't. So what is this about nuclear? The economics of a nuclear power station, although it doesn't pollute the environment with uh, with uh, uh, greenhouse gases, yeah, but the thing about it is, it's full of nuclear waste when we're when it's finished in forty years' time. And then somebody's got to guard that and protect it and look after it and make sure it doesn't leak into the water. And, 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 and. So, you know, the short-term benefit of not putting some carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and then a hundred thousand years of looking after nuclear waste, balancing it up, which is better, nuclear power stations or gas power stations? Well, one of my favourites, uh, which would be nuclear fusion. Which I do think is achievable, um, but there needs a little bit more investment because scientists are getting along with that and um, making a small headway into it. But still, it's always 20, 30 years off the joke amongst physicists, I believe, is. Um, but that would be unlimited clean energy, it'd be great. Yeah, but we also have other technologies like wind and solar that are cheaper than nuclear fusion. So, why would you do nuclear fusion? Because nuclear fusion creates no pollutants and uh, gives almost unlimited energy without the need to create lots of um, wind turbines or lots of solar panels. Uh, it can just replace nuclear um, fission power stations that we've got at the moment mm. without the risk of radiation. Yeah, I don't know about that one. I need to look into that a bit more. Fusion, it, created, it, it fuses metals together into non-radioactive metals. Hmm. I just, th- I've, I've got a feeling that, like I don't trust the idea of nuclear. <laughs> it's not but good. everything's nuclear. You're nuclear. Every, every atom in the world's nuclear. Uh, it's just what you do with those those atoms and their nuclear, nuclear tides. I don't know what to call it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, um, fission, uh, fission and fusion are very different beasts. Fission's the one we've got at the moment that's very dangerous. Fusion isn't. If a reactor breaks down, it just breaks down. It doesn't pollute the world. It doesn't right. blow up. Okay. Well, I should look into it more. I know it was one of uh, the top 20 solutions that was on a TED Talk I was listening to yesterday about the different things that we can, we can get behind. Yeah. Right, so what are my climates doing about all this? Alistair has sorted out his home energy. We've got solar panels on our roof here. And we've also got an air-to-air heat pump, so we've cut our carbon dioxide domestic footprint by 63% over six years now. We've still got the gas central heating, uh-huh. but we only ever use it, you know, if the temperature falls to about zero or below, we'll give it a zap for an hour just to boost things a bit. But basically, up there, um, can you see that unit? Yeah. Up there. Now, that's off just now because it's summertime. And that blows hot air into the house. And it goes up the stair here. So the design of our house is well suited for this. Or it goes through into the other rooms here. Okay. So that blows warm air through the house. And I'm going to take you outside. Um, in the garden, we have a small box. There, you see it there. Yeah. And that box um, 
basically sucks air in the back and it extracts the heat from it and blows it inside. And in fact, if, um, if it's very hot, we can run it in reverse and it cools the house. And during daytime, if there's a reasonable amount of light or sunlight, you don't even need full sunlight, you see the solar panels on the roof? Oh, yeah. So that's four kilowatts, 16 solar panels, four kilowatts of solar panels. So the heat pump, when it's ticking on normally, will only use about one third of the power that's coming off those solar panels if they're full on. And what that heat pump does is that it moves heat from outside. You'll say, well, what about in a cold day? What what it's minus three and it's sunny outside? Well, when it's minus three, but it's sunny outside, we're still getting free heat because the juice coming off the panels, which in winter will be about two kilowatts, will be going in there. There'll still be plenty free for our computers and so on. The juice will be going in there and it moves heat from outside to inside. So even when it's below zero, it can still take heat from that air because there's still heat in that air, although you wouldn't think it, and moves it inside. It's a bit like you use a bicycle pump and the end gets hot because you've got a big tube of air and you compress it into a small space and the heat in that air in the small space makes the end go hot. That's kind of how it works. That's great. And so it's an air source rather it, than ground source, isn't it? It's brilliant. And so, you know, our energy bills, Hazel, uh, well, we're paying £63 a month, average to cross a year, for our gas and electricity combined. So that's £730, £40 a year. And then we get a subsidy of about 630 on the solar panels. So we only pay about 100 for our energy. Great. But even without even without the subsidy, you know, even even then they would be very cheap. It used to cost us five years ago. It was costing us fourteen hundred pounds a year. So like, and we rent, so we don't really have control over stuff like that. Mm. Um, and at the moment, our um, heating is all oil, which isn't great. George has switched his energy supplier. I just googled eco sort of smart energy and there's a company called Eversmart that I had a bit of look around their website and I put in, I put in my information, you know, annual usage, where I live, etc. etc. Um, and they can so the, the, all of their sources, all their tariffs are from 100% renewable energy, which is obviously good for this, you know, this whole initiative that we're doing and it's a small step in the right direction for you know me. Um, and they're about twenty pounds a month, or so they claim, rather than forty pounds a month. So there's a not only there, is there an environmental argument, there's also a, in my opinion, I think most of this should be underpinned by, you know, an economical argument to make itself more realistic. So I, I've switched this morning, my, my, my lunchtime today, um, and I'm getting my welcome pack through uh, tomorrow. So um, I am officially off the mark from your list of suggestions in making my daily life a bit more eco-friendly so but to be, to, but to be honest it was it was easy obviously 
um, it's convenient and it's saving me money. So um, it's a bit of a, a no-brainer, really. As much as it can be renewables, although it all comes from the grid. Yeah. But yeah, I remember because I'm with Bulb, and Bulb said, if everyone in Britain joined Bulb, we'd love it, but we wouldn't be able to do 100% green electricity until the grid could cope with that. But uh, by offsetting, they can claim that they are, which yeah. is a good thing. Emily has made a process drama called The Oil of Life to take into schools and promote discussion about it. It was a really fantastic project. Um, process drama over uh, two weeks. We went in to work with the young people um, and it was looking at um, oil through drama and role play and what would happen um, in this imaginary situation where the oil was running out, but, well, not imaginary, real, but, um, and they there was like a Donald Trump kind of character who was kind of leading, leading, building an oil, dr- that was a drilling for oil in Loch Lomond. So it was, and it was, the project was in Western Berkshire. So we chose Loch Lomond because it was somewhere that meant a lot to the young people who lived there. And so they all got really passionate about protecting the Loch Lomond and not letting this character come and drill for oil. And, and during the workshop, they had to debate about where the, the diminishing oil sources would go. So they had to choose between uh, emergency services or heating or uh, heating homes or um, transport and and that kind of debate element they got to sort of pour oil into different beakers deciding how much and it was just a really great way to bring out opinions of young people to say oh, we we get to have a say on how this oil is used and also and then it answered and went into bigger questions about why we shouldn't be drilling up more oil and etc etc so this yeah basically I'd love to do this again and I've been really aware and careful about how much energy I'm using and I feel like we need to keep talking about this and so if we said well you know let's just close drags down if there was power cuts I'm pretty sure the population would say you know this is absolutely intolerable stop it now let's build 10 more coal-fired power stations we can't have power cuts I mean, I don't know if we had a power cut now. Society, if we had a power cut that lasted more than, say, 48 hours, I think it would, you know, things would be in a terrible state. Well, I've heard it's, you know, between the hours of four and seven is when, you know, there's most electricity used, and so that's when they have to top up when the renewables. So yeah. I was like, maybe we could just have a power cut between four and seven every now and again. <laughs> Um, obviously, like, look after the hospitals and emergency services and, you know, but people could put their heating on later and before and they could I think the things have salad. I think what you say, look, we'll, we'll, I mean, it's complicated, it's complicated, but you could say, right, electricity use between four and seven is twice the price. So if you wish to put on your dryer, then you'll pay more. But actually, because of global, because of the wind power... Uh, I think sort of from, say, one in the morning to five in the morning, we have a surplus of energy. The wind, the wind's blowing, the windmills are turning, but we, uh, but there's not a great demand for electricity. Yeah, we've been trying so to set our appliances to go in the night. night yeah. Might be quite good. Yeah. So, I mean, there are solutions to it, but I also think that, you know, if, if we have lots of wind in the north of Scotland, shall we have hundreds of pylons going from the north of Scotland to the central Scotland, which you put through Cairngorms and the Trossachs. And, 
you know, pylons are pretty bloody ugly, but if global warming is this terrible, terrible threat, then, you know, we, we don't care about the visual effect. But I think people don't realise that there have to be quite hard decisions made. And again, pylons through the Cairngorms would be horrible, but, you know, better than global warming. It sometimes feels like this conversation is just tapping at the surface. There are so many hidden reservoirs of ideas that are yet to be discovered once we start drilling deeper into the issue. In one of the MSCs I did, I did a big thing um, on um, peak oil. You know, the, the, the theory of peak oil that, you know, oil's going to run out, as it were. Um, and what I what, what I did find was that the peak oil theory might not be necessarily correct. I mean, it's going to happen eventually. It will run out. It'll become too expensive to, you know, we'll, be, we'll end up getting less energy out of the barrels of oil that we recover than we put in to get it out of the, out of the hole, you know. That we'll hit that point eventually. So we will hit peak oil, as it were, at some point. But what I did notice doing the peak oil research was uh, zero carbon um, like villages uh, popping up. You know, uh, whole villages dedicated. You know, we're going to we're going to make the place zero carbon emissions by such and such. I saw a lot of them popping up. That was like ten years ago, and that's I think what's needed. Because obviously, if your community can be zero carbon, then it's pretty much resilient. Thank you to all my climates. In this episode, we heard Aaron, Michael, Derek, Julia, Geraldine, Anne, Pab, Alex, Kenneth, Alistair, Heather, George, Emily, Hugh, and I'm Hazel. And thank you for listening. This is an independent production, by which I mean I'm a mum and I'm literally making this in my bedroom. The only support I have is that of my mum looking after the kids and my husband who's putting up with me going on and on about it. So if you enjoyed the podcast and you can tell your friends, there's a link to it on social media. Uh, You can leave me a nice review. That would be amazing. Thank you. You want to change the world, you can't stand by. The next episode is one of my favourites. It's all about activism, Extinction Rebellion and getting involved politically. I didn't really go knowing very many people. I hadn't been joined part of like a group or anything. I just decided to just go. And so I was quite nervous because I was like, what if there's like nobody turns up or there's like 50 of us or something? Podcast. That was good. <laughs> <laughs>